Welcome back to the Theology of the Body podcast, a podcast for Catholics who love tradition and want more of it. This is episode 56. My name is Chris, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Micah and Brooke. And today, we are celebrating our final liturgical breakdown of our second season. And we're going to be hopping into uh, the epistle, the gradual tract, Alleluia, and the gospel. I think this is uh, going to be a fun one. Guys, yeah, it's, it's going to be great. It's good to see you once again. How are you? Awesome. We're good. Yeah. Very good. How are you, Brooke? I made the best chicken wings tonight. Mm-hmm. They were really good. So I'm very good. That's usually how it goes. If the food was good, the day was good. <laughs> no, we're uh, happy plate, happy mate. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> we had a good weekend. We uh, planted a bunch of our garden yesterday. Lots of veggies back there now. Mm-hmm. What are you growing? Ooh, we're growing garlic. We're growing lettuces, leaf lettuce, Swiss chard, kale. We're growing onions, tomatoes. Peppers, broccoli, broccoli, cauliflower, bok choy, zucchini, zucchini. Yeah. Wow. Basil. We got hops. We got raspberries. We got blackberries. Parsley. Yeah. Chocolate mint, spearmint. I got my own bubblegum mint. And we're infusing vodka with said mint. Chocolate mint. Yeah. So there you go. Am, <laughs> you, I, am I hipster yet? You asked for this list. <laughs> and that's the episode. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Stay dry. Wow, has it been an hour already? <laughs> Hold on. Home and Garden is calling me. <laughs> There's our uh, HGTV sponsorship. <laughs> uh, that's great. That's great. You guys have upped your, your gardening game for sure. This year, huh? Yeah. That's almost double we, what you did last year. That Well, that's more than double, isn't it? It's more more types of things, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. We, uh, we expanded a little bit. Yeah. We've got some new berry spots. And, and there's a couple of things we're not sure what they are yet. Something's coming back from last year, and we keep going back and forth on what we think it is. But uh, Oh, yeah. That's... That's the surprise one. Yeah. There's a mystery plant that I was going to dig up when I was prepping the ground. And then I saw it was covered in buds. And I, I forget what it was last year. I swear it's squash. We don't even I know. swear. So there you go. Wow. We left it there. We have a mystery plant now. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking and the bok choy of- went to seed. So like now we have so much more bok choy than we had hoped. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um speaking of food, uh what about that day of fasting and prayer of Pope Francis, huh? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> we uh we I don't know if you'd say we Okay. I would say we didn't 
participate in it directly because I wouldn't want to participate in something that seems syncretistic, but we did make a point of um, praying the prayer in time of epidemic against the coronavirus on that day. Obviously, I'm kind of upset about the continual push of all religions can pray together because that's fine. Like, I, it was funny because I was prepping for confession. That's another point. I finally got to go to confession. But anyways, on the fasting day, I was prepping, um, like going through an examination of conscience. And one of the sins on the list is um, participating in prayers of other religions. And I'm like, oh, check that one off. I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> didn't do it not going to yeah. even if <laughs> Pope Francis implies that it's okay it's not yeah it's not okay yeah and uh yeah i mean if you're not aware i mean it was a day of prayer and fasting encouraged by the holy father um wherein he asked people of all faiths to pray and fast against the coronavirus. Um, but uh, the the thing is, it wasn't actually simply Pope Francis. It was that, what was it called? The Higher... Higher Committee of Human Fraternity. Right. Which is, I mean, they're not even hiding the fact that they're Masons, let's be honest. Um <laughs> putting human fraternity in their name like that. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, it, it wasn't his event. It was put on by this committee and they're the people behind the Abu Dhabi document on religions that implies that all religions are equal, which Pope Francis foolishly signed. And they're the ones building this like mega church complex with three churches, one for Judaism, one for Christianity and one for Islam, except they're all like unidentifiable cubes that look identical. Yeah. yeah. There's so much wrong with this. <laughs> this group is like, it couldn't be more clear that their goal is to, destroy the church you know they <laughs> yeah the fact that he is either through i'm not saying it's through malice even if it's gullibility the fact that he's going along with this group is horrible they are absolute enemies of the church and no i mean no other Pope has really gone along with the agenda of these groups like this. I don't think right. at least not openly like that. No. Maybe, maybe they have behind the scenes. You can debate that until the end of the world, but openly <laughs> they haven't. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, I mean, to me, it's the, 
fruition of the failures of the documents of the Second Vatican Council, though. I mean, the ambiguity and all of that, the push for ecumenism uh, and religious freedom, uh, it's... uh, yeah, it's crazy. I don't know. I it bothers me. It bothers me. It scared the it scared the absolute crap out of me when I when I saw that the Holy Father was encouraging people of all religions to pray and fast. I mean, to pray is one thing. To offer sacrifice, right? Which fasting is. Fasting is a form of sacrifice and to encourage people of all religions to offer sacrifice to their pagan gods uh you know thinking all roads lead to lead to god which they don't um even if there's a all the gods of the gentiles are idols or demons yeah yeah so it's uh sacrifice to idols Mm, i think i remember reading about that Mm -hmm. uh not recommended yeah Right. No. No. Mm. So, yeah it 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 bothers me. So, uh, for our friends who are listening, if you are unaware that this was happening, maybe just say a prayer of reparation um, for the blasphemy of this event, um, because it it was explicit blasphemy. Um, again, again, yeah, we know the there were places that did like pagan prayers combined with Catholic stuff, like pagan prayers in Catholic churches, stuff like that. Right. Yep. Like, did he say, you know, pray and fast to God, the father? No. Cause even in at least one of his statements, he did say to God or something like that, but definitely not in, all of them. Right. <laughs> like in the one the one prayer he did that we were discussing. Mm. He did say pray to God. But in other statements he didn't. And he did join with that higher committee for human fraternity. So even yeah. if he even if he That's did what I was say, say it, too. Yeah. Like yeah, the fact that it came from that group, which explicitly believes all religions are equal, and he said we should join this group in doing what they're doing, yeah. means that even if he says we should pray to God, that means he's saying, yeah, Catholics pray to God, mm-hmm. and Hindus pray to your false idols and the demons behind them. Yeah. Again, like, you know, we can't say that. Muslims believe in, you know, our God, right? Absolutely. We can say that they don't believe in our God. Yeah. But some some people think, oh, yes, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God. No. Yeah. I mean, just to quickly, how I look at it is, I mean, yeah, you can say, a law all you want, which is just the Arabic word for God. So they're saying God all the time, but what they mean by God is not what we mean. It's not the Trinity. 
-hmm. It's not a God that's recognizable even compared to like what we knew in the Old Testament before we knew of the Trinity, the attributes of the Islamic false God is not the God of the Jews or, you know, it's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not the God that we know and worship. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's a satanic false God. Mm -hmm. But I find that more and more, you know, it's just like in everywhere I, I look, Allah, Allah. Allah, Allah, Allah. <laughs> In every blade of glass. That was such a disappointing song. <laughs> like, what happened? <laughs> if you don't know that song, uh, it's, what's it called? It's by me without you. Um, what's yeah. It, what's it called? Which you guys, who, who you guys love. Yeah. But we don't love that song. No. No. <laughs> Except to use it as a meme. Yeah. That was on It's All Crazy, right? Uh, oh, yeah. It's just called Allah, Allah, Allah. <laughs> Catchy. Catchy. Me without you. Catchy. So now that we've uh, talked about the Masonic Day of Prayer and, yeah, caught up on that couple shout outs before we we hop into the main podcast um so first of all big shout out to our friends from the catholic anime geeks facebook group they are great incredibly welcome commu- welcoming community uh and they corrected me on their page which i appreciated um because the plural for anime it's not animes or animusin or animusin in the woods in it's anime. <laughs> <laughs> so, thanks guys. Also, Brian, what's the plural for anime? <laughs> animusin. A two boxing of anime. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was saying animes all through that podcast and uh yeah i was wrong and everyone was just kind of ironically going along with it like haha we're being funny saying animes and here i was like being totally serious and you guys were thinking it was being ironic yeah like come on it's Um, okay you're not very good at math (laughs) why do you got to be like that why do why do you got to do me like that man why do you got to do me like that? <laughs> Don't edit that burnout. It's no, important. <laughs> the best part was that there was like a little glitch from the internet because the internet didn't like the way you were talking to me. Um, oh. <laughs> but it but it stays in. It stays in. I'm not going to edit out your, your sick burn on my math skills. Come on. I'm not going to just omit things, right? Like... Uh, like the new lectionary. Yeah, which we'll talk about. We'll um, get there. <laughs> but yeah, also quick shout out to uh, Michelle from the Modern Lady podcast. She enjoyed the anime podcast and uh, she's totally um, going to be checking out like our recommendations, which I thought was cool. So big shout out to her. 
And last but not least, before we make the cut over to our topic today, let's talk about the forthcoming Save It or Shave It campaign. Uh, To talk about this, we turn to our correspondent in the field, Brooke Strauss. Brooke, tell us about the, uh, the Save It or Shave It campaign. What's going on? Well, you see, my lip hair is getting awfully fuzzy. Haven't been able to get it waxed in a while. Um, Mike needs it gone. And uh, yeah, we're, we're looking for sponsors to help get rid of this uh, this lovely piece of work here. Looking like Tom Selleck over here. Hello. Wow. <laughs> no, but seriously, I'm going to shave my head. This is going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> gonna go, gonna go full Audrey Assad, right? Full Audrey Assad. Hmm? No, I'm just kidding. No, Chris You're- is gonna shave his head. No, <laughs> no, no, just kidding. So Chris and I have been talking about doing a shave it or save it, and you probably, if you follow us on Instagram, which you should, you would have seen Chris post the question of whether or not he should, you know, do a shave it or save it for his beard. If we reached what seven hundred followers, so yeah, so we're so we're thinking what we'll do is that if we reach by what is it mid June for our mm-hmm. final our final episode, if we reach seven hundred followers by mid June, then I will shave my beard, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, if we. What if we reach 800? I, I suggested, I don't know if Mike is on board with this. I suggested if we got to 800 followers, Chris and Mike would shave their beards. With, with the caveat, with the caveat that we will, um, for those who will help encourage followers by tagging people in posts and things like that, uh, we will put them into a raffle essentially and mm-hmm. they can vote for what they want to see done to my beard. So if you want to see mutton chops, you can do it. If you want to see like a pedo stash, you got it. <laughs> like handlebars. I mean, I might be able to get a little bit right. Look at that. Wow. Oh yeah. Like I could, I could get I, that. I, I, could get I can going. see it. Right. That would be great, actually. I mean, that mustache is so long, they can probably see it even on a podcast. Yeah. (laughs) If they listen, they could just feel it, like, tickle their eardrums. You should should see what happens when I go to give John a kiss. I get get real close, and then before my lips get him, the mustache gets him. And he's just like... (laughs) 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 I haven't seen your full face in, like years really it's been a long time when was the last time you shaved that beard completely yeah Yeah. i don't know maybe maybe, it's been a long time chris maybe i can't remember i mean i had my goatee when we went to audio feed last summer and that's because i had a shaving mishap it was not intentional by any stretch yeah I forgot about evil Chris. (laughs) So mean. So mean. 
Now, now I don't know if we were going to mention this, but if we reached 900 followers, you know, the two guys would alter their beards and I would also put my, uh, my hairdo up for change, literally anything. So you could shave your head for 900 followers. I think I'd make Mike yeah. really sad. And I think most of our trad listeners would not encourage it, but I would uh, probably die at any color. They I'm going to make a, a public appeal to the followers. If we get to that stage that you need to force Brooke to grow her hair out. <laughs> she keeps saying, Oh, long hair doesn't suit me. And I'm like, wait, are you not a woman? <laughs> no, here's I have really I have really thick hair. It's really hard for, for me to manage. And <laughs> I don't do anything else. I don't do my makeup or anything. So my hair is kind of all I got. You know. Long hair suits everybody. I will dye it platinum. I will go <laughs> platinum if we can get 900 followers. If we hit a thousand Instagram, you need to make her grow her hair down to her butt. <laughs> make it a multi-year project. I'll get I'll get extensions. That'll look real nice. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. If we get it, yeah. That's a fair one for sure. <laughs> yeah. And My if goodness. we hit if we hit a thousand followers by mid-June, by episode sixty, I will dye my hair purple. Like bright purple. Wow. Wow. I'll do it. That'll go over really well at the Latin mass. <laughs> Trust me, I'm not we I don't think we're going back for a while. Not in this diocese anyway, right? If it looked really bad. If it looked really bad, hypothetically, do you think you would shave your head and keep the beard? Would you go like Ryan Clark? No, I just die back. Ryan Clark. Can yeah. you think of someone more famous to reference, like Mike Strauss from Theology of the Body? <laughs> I really like poor Brian Clark. <laughs> I love Demon Hunters. So does <laughs> <laughs> Vincent. Yeah. Okay, so, I like them too. So yeah, so that's on the table. So um, we'll see where things go. We'll start putting out a a campaign probably this week. Mike Brooke and I'll be working on that and uh we'll get some stories going, we'll get some some infographics into the uh uh into the thing. And then also just a little bug in people's ear, there is a big giveaway coming up. Yep. But it's not going to happen until before season 3, right? Mhm. So, um, look for that this summer. Um, okay. So now that we've kind of gotten beyond that, um, like I said earlier, this is our last liturgical breakdown of season two. You keep tempting me to do the song. What's the song, Mike? It's the final breakdown. Okay, now I've got it out of my system. We can okay. <laughs> we can move on now. Awesome. So, I don't know if we mentioned this last time, but yeah, we are gearing up for our big finale, which is coming on June. I think it's in a month from now, right? June. I think it's June sixteenth. 
June 17th. Oh, 17th. Okay. Yep. So episode 60. 60 episodes. It's pretty crazy. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've 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 come a long way. Um yeah. We're gonna we're gonna have a good a really good finale. I think you guys are gonna enjoy it. Um but anyways, shall we shall we get into the the meat of today's yeah. podcast? Let's go. What's an epistle? We talked about this last week. Um Yeah. <laughs> Comes from the Latin. I didn't study. (laughs) Comes from the the Latin word epistola, which means letter. (laughs) Epistola. No, so we're actually starting with the gradual. Yeah. Or do we have more on the epistle? Well, maybe just a brief touch point, kind of reminding Mm -hmm. what we talked about last time. So, um, in the in the traditional Latin mass. There is the epistle, gradual, um, the alleluia, or tract, the sequence, and then the gospel. Uh, sequence is not doesn't always happen, but we'll we'll talk about that. Um, but in the generally speaking, the epistle is a letter from Saint Paul or Saint Peter, James, blah blah blah. But the, um, but sometimes there's Old Testament readings, right? That Brooke talked about that last week. Um, mm-hmm. But in the early church, there was early early church. There was the um, there was an Old Testament reading and the epistle and the gospel. So that got kind of squeezed together and became just the epistle. And did we did we talk about when it got pushed together? Because it was pretty early, right? It has to be, yeah. Even in uh, even in the East, they only have epistle and gospel, so it's not only a, a Western thing, right? Divine liturgy has the same structure there, mm-hmm. but the. In the Novus Ordo, or sorry, well, sorry, in the, um, so we've got the Eastern Rite, the traditional Latin Mass, and in the Anglican Ordinariate, they all have this kind of sequence of readings, right? It's only in the Novus Ordo, or in the New Mass, that has the Old Testament reading, the Psalm, the Epistle, and then the gospel, right? Alleluia, and then All gospel, yeah. yeah. Mm. Which is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what more to to say on that now, but it is one of those antiquarian things, right? Where it's kind of like the entire church has developed in one way, and then, you know, you find a reference to something old and suddenly the reformers are like, we're going to do it this way. The last 2000 years didn't happen. And- I mean, so 
playing devil's avocado. Okay. So if, if a person were to say, well, but you know, Catholics need to know their Bible better. And it was a way of encouraging Catholics to know better the scriptures. What, how, what would you, what would you guys say to that? I mean, I'd say one of the, there's a lot of angles to approach it. The first thing that always jumps into my head is the kind of more Protestant focus of hmm, making the mass into a Bible study by kind of lengthening the um, liturgy of the word with the extra reading. Um, not that like it's a huge step in that direction, but it does kind of sound like that's the motivation, right? To use more time in Bible study and somewhat to the neglect of the prayerful aspect of the mass, I guess. The other thing is like, um, the lectionary that exists in the traditional Latin mass um, substantially goes back to St. Jerome. So like, I'd be very hesitant to make a substantial edit to a, a set of readings with that much antiquity, 1600 years in the church. And I mean, up until the 60s revolution, the basically the only thing they've done is stuff like adding readings for saint days and stuff, right? Like, to my knowledge, substantially, these Sundays, weekdays have remained the same. And they have such strongly established themes. Like, how would you even... How, how do you even as a scholar approach the task of um, adding readings to these masses that have been um, designed to evoke certain themes and teach certain lessons and have been established in those lessons throughout the entire life of the church? I, yeah. I think it's like a much more serious undertaking than people think. And it's not something where you're just like, oh, more readings is better. So let's just add one because another one would be two readings are better than one. Three readings are better than two. Let's, let's do it. Why not add three more? Let's, let's make the whole mass reading from each book of the Bible. And here's the thing, like the mass wasn't designed to be a Bible study, as you guys have said. Um, like I can think of it in this way. You're going to have a harder time remembering core important themes over a three year cycle versus a one year. Do you know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. if you're going through the entire Bible over the course of three years, is that what it is? It's a three-year cycle? Yeah. Like, we're supposed to read our Bible anyway. 
like studying the scriptures, you know, yeah. a fundamental part of our prayer life. It's a bit of a different topic from the, maybe we're going off on a bit of a tangent, but it's a really important point. Like the, the character of these Sundays is I think something that mm -hmm. is the value of it is unappreciated by modern Catholics, right? Like to be able to like, as I think Dr. Peter Kwasniewski talks about, um, pick out something like the 14th Sunday after Pentecost and to have like a set of readings that go together on that day mm -hmm. that is actually so memorable every year that um, even what is now an ordinary time Sunday, which kind of blend together in the old calendar, they have a character unique to each Sunday, mm -hmm. which over time, if you go to mass for your whole life as a Catholic, you start to remember these days. Remember, you know, the chants that go with these readings and how they relate to each other, mm -hmm. the lessons that they try to teach. There's almost like a heartbeat to that, that consistency, mm -hmm. that repetition of the days every single year. Yeah. You know, we do it on Christmas. We do it on Easter. Yeah. Another good point that he, the same Dr. Peter makes is like that yearly cycle is a human cycle, a natural mm -hmm. cycle. Humans celebrate feast days on the same day every year. You don't like have an important liturgical day like Christmas and celebrate it every third year. You know, that's just absurd. We don't have saints days that come every third year or every other year. You know, we, we follow the natural cycle of our planet and our seasons, something that's actually a part of our lives and helps us learn and remember things. Mm -hmm. Yep. They literally had to make a new calendar to be able to suit their, their body of readings. And, you know, they, for example, they take the, uh, the feast of Christ, the King, they move them to the end of the year, the end of the liturgical year, uh, instead of, mm -hmm. you know, what is it at the end of September or end of October? I can't remember. Yeah, it's um, right in there with um, All Souls and All Saints, right? There's an important link between all these three feasts, and now they've moved Christ the King away from them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So they, so they had to make a whole new calendar to suit their, their desire instead of, um, like you said, um, recognizing that importance of that um, consistency of of the liturgical calendar, and even just just for an, another example, think about our uh, our roots. Think about the Jews, the people mm -hmm. of Israel. They had a consistent calendar. You know, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles. You know. And it was always celebrated at the same time, generally speaking, every year, mm -hmm. right? Passover, every year, the same time. Well, you know, when 
although it was a lunar yeah. calendar, lunar it was calendar. Yeah. every year. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, and it wasn't a three year cycle. <laughs> yeah. And that's gone through all of Judaism and all of Christianity and other than the Novus Ordo calendar. The East has never had anything but a one year calendar. Right. And here's the thing. We still have a one year calendar for our feast days. So now we've got this crazy situation where, you know, you have three different Christmas readings and like three different possible readings for each saint day, or if it's a weekday, two options. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So the, like, it's wild. Mm -hmm. I just, (laughs) do you, I don't get it. Do you remember, I don't know if you, you would remember this at all, but from our days in, in youth ministry with life teen, um, Mm -hmm. back in the day they used to send, I don't know if they do it anymore. I presume they do. Um, send liturgical planning guides and you would have to sit there and it would have the readings and, you know, the um, musical choices that they suggest for every, you know, essentially for every Sunday kind of thing so that it matched kind of the themes from the readings and you know like and it changed every every year right like you would have to and yeah so i mean there was no consistency that way um yeah and you're and you're always the thing that was interesting too is like the uh the liturgical planning guide would have a section for the priest right where it would say here's the themes that we're seeing from the readings. Here's what we suggest, you know, maybe you can talk about in your homily. I don't know. I just, the fact that they had to, and they would always have to update it, right? They'd always have to every update Every year. It. Yeah. And, and, and that, that gives you the opportunity for every year, a new modernist idea of what to preach on. Right. Like who knows who's writing these guides, right? Right. Whereas if you've got a, a consistent calendar that's the same one the church has always been using, you can say, hey, I wonder what um, Alphonsus Liguori preached on on this day that I'm about to preach on. Let me go look up his sermons from this day, and it's the same readings. You have the same themes available to you. And you can do this with like every priest, saint who has their sermons recorded <laughs> online, right? Yeah. It's you it's don't wild. have to rely on like Sally from the, you know, whatever office is writing these guides. <laughs> yeah. Susan from the parish council or whatever. Right. Also just an aside, just a side note, right. One of the things that I think was spawned from this, this new liturgical calendar and plethora of readings is the, creation of missalettes so what also you see happening which is kind of a scary idea is mass production of these sacred texts from the word of god which are generally thrown in the garbage or in the recycle bin at the end of the month and you get a new one 
So you're constantly throwing out the word of God. You're con and a lot of parishes don't do this. I know our our friend Father Steve encourages people to bring their missiles, missilettes, and and put them in a box, and he'll go and burn them uh, during our camping trips <laughs> that we have. <laughs> but um, you know, it's it's unfortunate. There's this mass production of the word of God, and it's being and here's the thing even i mean no offense to father steve i love you but even burning them and disposing of the books respectfully there's still a problem here Mm -hmm. i mean when you're producing a liturgical book it's a sacred object that should have a lifespan longer than a month word i mean it's not Father Steve's fault. He's doing his best to deal with the situation of the Novus Ordo lectionary. And this is a situation it puts him in because you can't print three years of an insane amount of options for readings for every single parishioner, you know, maybe lugging in like 16 books. I don't know. <laughs> But you can buy like the big missiles, yeah, right? Yeah. But yeah, honestly, most it. people are going to go the convenience route and just take it's, the missile. It's absolutely enormous. Yeah. <laughs> if you put it in one book. Yeah. Well, if you put it in one book. Yeah. I mean, you could have, I guess you could have your ABC books and. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm showing put it right now on the. the put key. that in your purse. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's humongous. It really is. And it's confusing. It's confusing. Mm. Like, it's almost as confusing with the ribbons as, like, the liturgy of the hours sometimes. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. Anyways, so, yeah, this, like, like you said, not only has it led to throwing the word of God in the garbage, but right from the start, it's led to printing, um, missiles as a disposable object which is just wrong it's just like i mean it's not that long in the church that we've had like such plentiful access to hand missiles and we seem to have in a a very typical human fashion gone from not being able to have these precious missiles because they're too expensive to treating them like trash this is typical modernity right you know we we have the privilege to have this thing that our ancestors could only dream of and now you know we want to treat it like a microwave dinner and use it and dispose of it you know bad times we need to get better at this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm hoping we can do it gradually. Mm-hmm. <sighs> but, but maybe before, before we gradually get to that point, the other thing, speaking about junking the word of God, the other points of, with regards to the omissions in the current lectionary, you had talked about that earlier. Oh yeah. Let's not let that, pass either right we know that um in 
ones that were publicized for um, the selection of these readings. Hmm. The, intentionally, certain passages were suppressed from it. And even though the kind of party line is that we're giving you more scripture, and that's why we're doing this, intentionally, many, many passages that are on Sundays in the traditional lectionary were intentionally suppressed and cut out because they're too difficult in air quotes. And often that means it's hard teachings and things that if people don't hear it every Sunday, they're going to get in trouble with these things because they are hard teachings, right? Like um, if you're a trad and you've read a lot of this stuff, you've probably heard the example before because it's the most egregious one, right? The warning against um, receiving Holy Communion in a state of mortal sin. This is from uh, Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians, chapter eleven. And uh, here, let me just read the snippet of it. It says. Uh, therefore, whoever shall eat this bread or drink the chalice of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man prove himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of the chalice. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh judgment to himself, not discerning the body of the Lord. Therefore, there are many infirm and weak among, among you, and many sleep. There's so much in this little passage that's cut out of the new uh, lectionary. Um, first of all, obviously, the fact that if you eat and drink the Holy Eucharist unworthily, you are bringing God's judgment upon yourself. What a weird concept that almost no one as a modern Catholic going to the Novus Ordo seems to be aware of, right? that it's a very serious matter to receive Holy Communion worthily. And what does the church mean by that? I mean, A, being in a state of grace, but also the practical manner in which we receive. I mean, if the priest reads this passage on Sunday and preaches about it, are you still going to thoughtlessly slouch up in shorts and mumble and walk off with the host? You know, are you still going to not think about the fact that you haven't been to confession in 10 years and you're still coming up for communion? I mean, these are things that people need to think about. And intentionally, this passage that makes them think these hard thoughts is cut out. That alone makes the entire lectionary deficient. This one passage is enough to say, we need to cut this new lectionary and go back. But this is not the only passage. There are many of these. This is just probably the most egregious because of what we see at Mass every Sunday at the Novus Ordo. Yeah, even, even John Paul II, right, in his... Uh, final encyclical, which was Ecclesia de Eucharistia, 
quotes St. John Chrysostom, and I'm taking this from the New Liturgical Movement. He says, quote, I too raise my voice, I beseech, beg, and implore that no one draw near to this sacred table with a sullied and corrupt conscience. Such an act, in fact, can never be called communion, not even were we to touch the Lord's body a thousand times over, but condemnation, torment, and increase of punishment, end quote. Like, JP2 even understood this, right? But it got, this thing got chopped out completely. But in the Latin Mass, right, the message of of St. Paul here is heard at least three times every year, once on Holy Thursday and twice on Corpus Christi. Yeah, that's another thing, right? The church once for 1,600 or more years from St. Jerome to the present thought this reading was so important that it would go on the most important Eucharistic feast days. Like Holy Thursday and Corpus Christi, what Eucharistic readings do you put in there? That's that's a high bar, right? I mean, this is what the church chose to give her people that um that essential warning. And to uh, encourage them to, as St. As Paul says, prove themselves and to approach, to give them that uh, challenge and encouragement to get themselves in a state of grace, to approach and receive Holy Communion reverently. The other thing I was going to mention, I said there was a lot in this passage. Um, I wanted to come back to that last line. Therefore, there are many infirm and weak among you and many sleep. St. Paul's saying that God is not blessing the Corinthians because they're mistreating the Holy Eucharist. Look at our church today. Is God blessing our church overall, or is he chastising his church? And what could be the reason that our church deserves God's chastisement at this period in history? There are many reasons, but one of them is exactly the same reason the Corinthians deserved God's punishment. Our church today deserves it just as much or more. Just a heads up, you could, uh, whatever priest thought it was a good idea to put the Eucharist in Ziploc bags, read this passage. Yeah, that's not a, sorry. That's a yeah. that's a recent thing, right? The their response and to the fear of the coronavirus is placing the sacred host in it's selfish, bags. yeah, empathetic, yeah, and sacrilegious. Yep, you know, but. Uh, um, maybe as a as another mention, right? So keep in mind, right? These these words have not been read in our churches for over half a century. Look at the devastation, just in general, before the coronavirus. 
decimation of vocations, destruction of family life, destruction of the sacramental life of the church. Like there is so many things that are crumbling, right? The you know, the new catechism calls the the Eucharist the the source and summit of the Christian life. If it's not treated like that, if it's not held and cherished, if the if the foundation of our faith is weakened, the house falls. The house falls. Mm-hmm. And I want to also kind of compare this to another point that um, another omission, if you will, of the new lectionary. And it's not that it's removed completely, but that it's set aside. And that is the wedding feast of Cana. The wedding feast of Cana is read once every three years. And it's at this point in the scriptures that the church has always understood that Christ the Lord was instituting and blessing the sacrament of marriage, right? And what do we see now in terms of marital life in the church, right? Equal numbers of divorce. You know, if you're only talking about marriage once every three years, that's a problem. (laughs) That's a problem. And if you don't have that understanding of a proper marital life, earthly speaking, you know, you'll never understand the ecclesial analogy of bride and bridegroom. You'll never understand that. Um, so, I mean, these omissions have devastating impacts. I, I, I believe that wholeheartedly. Absolutely. Well, we've come to the gradual. You guys want to quickly talk about the gradual? Yeah. So either of you care to tell me what the gradual is? So essentially it's reading from the Psalms and gradual, um, according to Monsignor Mormon comes from, um, the ancient custom of reading the gradual from the Ambo step, which is interesting. Um, that's not something that stayed in the Latin mass, right? Yeah, because um, very early on in the Roman church, even from, I think, the time of Gregory, it changed to reading um, epistle and gradual from the altar instead of the ambo. Yeah, the name kind of uh, continues to reference that tradition. In a sense, it's almost another preparatory step, you know, as we prepare to listen to the gospel. Right. And Alleluia, interestingly, Alleluia replaces it, right, in Eastertide. That's a, a big difference compared to Novus Ordo. In Novus Ordo, you always have a psalm before the epistle and then an Alleluia after. Traditionally, you have after the epistle, the gradual, and then uh, an Eastertide replacing it with the Alleluia. Uh, according to Dom Garanger, um, he says, speaking about that step you were talking about, when about to sing it, 
They went to the ambo, which was a sort of marble pulpit placed in the church. And it was on account of the steps which led to the ambo that this portion of the chant got the name gradual. Just as the gradual psalms were those which the Jews used to sing whilst ascending the steps of the temple. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Again, cool. that temple analogy, right? I will go in unto the altar of God, to God who giveth joy to my youth. Right? So cool. So cool. Yeah. And interesting how, like, they they keep the name to kind of maintain the analogy, even though the gradual is actually being read at the altar. It's like, um, I think it was Fulton, Fulton Sheen that said, um, the church has always had this custom of never completely cutting something out of its liturgy. Even when there's a change like that, there's always some kernel of it that's kept and maintained in respect of the tradition. Obviously, he said that before Vatican II. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, the new mass did not do any of that. Even the even the Holy Week changes didn't do that. But, um, something else maybe to point out with that, if you're not familiar with the with the traditional Latin mass, you know the even though the during Easter tide, the you know gradual is removed. The psalms have not been removed from the mass at all. If you're familiar Absolutely. with the Latin mass, it's <laughs> they're everywhere. Psalms are everywhere, like it. It's unreal. Yeah, and and even in the Alleluia, the like versicle that goes along with it is usually based on a psalm. Is it not? I believe so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think so. We've been reading them at home. Yeah. So the gradual is followed by the Alleluia, um, or if the season requires it, by the tract. The Alleluia is repeated after the manner of a responsory. It is then followed by a verse, which having been said, the Alleluia is sung a third time. This is coming from Dom Garanger. It says here, uh, this by excellence, the chant of the praise of God deserved to have a place in the Mass. There is something so joyous and at the same time so mysterious about it that during penitential seasons, Advent and Lent, um, that is from Septuagesima to Easter, it is not to be said. Advent. Did I say that? Father Mike. Yeah. <laughs> right. You did. I was just underlining it <laughs> for anyone who might not know Father Mike Schmitz. Let's get back on track. So during the penitential seasons, um, there is replaced, the Alleluia is replaced by a tract. Um, the tract takes up the attention of the faithful. Um, during the time required for the several ceremonies, when the deacon, after having asked the priest's blessing, goes in procession to the ambo of the gospel and prepares to herald the word of God. The tract is composed sometimes of an entire psalm 
or nearly so as we have for the first Sunday of Lent, but generally it gives only a few verses. To add to that from uh, This is the Mass, um, it, it says here, quote, it was designed for the voices of the great solo singers of the past to be sung without interruption uh, by them without the intervention of the choir and being set to solemn and noble music. It is red, redolent of antiquity. That was really interesting. That's the gradual mm-hmm. or the tract? Mormon just says there is something plaintive about long, drawn-out strains of a single voice, mm-hmm. making it appropriate to penitential seasons. Mm. Very true. Mm-hmm. Coming, a lot coming, of work that has to be put into doing that. And it does come out especially somber. Going going back just a little bit with regards to the gradual, it's the same kind of thing. It says here, the gradual is really the most musical piece of the whole liturgy. And as the rendering of it requires great skill, there were never more than two chanters permitted to sing it. Cool. So uh, sh- shout out to Greg for those times when, uh, when I cut out during, uh, during mass and I just let you take it. Shout out, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were just uh, trying to be uh, rad trad. <laughs> so we weren't allowed. Also, shout, yeah. out, shout out to, to Dave Domet, how we <sighs> so miss his voice. Oh, Dave, I love you. He's growing, his hair is, from miss this quarantine so is growing into a ponytail. Did you see that? What? No. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. Imitation is the highest form of flattery. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> he saw you imitating him by trying to chant, so he's just uh, turning. <laughs> Dear oh, Vox man. Cantoris, we love you. So, sequencia. Do you want to talk about that real quick? Yeah, this is something I didn't know that. Uh, they were, um, um, what is it, 12th and 13th century uh, poems mm-hmm. that were read at certain certain feast days. There are five of them. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I would never have been able to remember which ones they are or when they are because I'm such a Latin mass noob. But, uh, Brooke. yeah, there are some really uh, illustrious people who are thought to have written them as well, which is cool. What were you going to say? I was just going to ask Brooke. um, You said five of them. The documentation I have here says four of them. I'm looking here. There's the Victime Pascali, Beni Sancte Spiritus, Lauda Sion, Dies Irae, and the Stabat Mater. Those I am referencing. This is the mass. With Fulton Sheen. And, uh, Monsignor Mormon also has the same five. Yeah. So originally it was four. The the Stabat Mater was added later. Um, Mm. And then the monastic missal has also the Leta Dies for the Feast of St. Benedict. It is the composition of the 16th century. Cool. Yeah. So some of the writers are cool, like Laudacion. Um, for Corpus Christi, Christi is um, ascribed to St. Thomas Aquinas. 
that last one, Stabat Mater, attributed to Pope Innocent III. Mass of the Saints, guys. Yeah. I didn't know, who was the other saint? Oh, a Veni Sancti Spiritus. Composed by Blessed Hermanus Contractus. Cool. If you are among the blessed who are able to attend Mass on the Feast of Pentecost in the traditional Latin Mass, there is a plenary indulgence for singing the Vene Sancte Spiritus. So uh, make sure you go to a Latin Mass that day. And then and then go to a drive-in confession. Or a confession by appointment or however they're doing it. Right. I didn't tell the story, but I, I managed to get to a confession by appointment where uh, I went to a basically a really remote mission church. And it's not hiding because it's, it's above board. He's allowed to do it by the bishop and stuff. But it's conveniently for no virus spread. He's, uh, this priest is offering confession at this mission church in a tiny town. And it was literally only me and the priest in the entire church. No one's around. You just walk in and there's like two chairs in the middle of the parish hall <laughs> in the entire place. Yourself. So that's one way of doing confession. Sorry. Digression over. Let's return. <laughs> <laughs> so this brings us to the gospel. Did you want to say anything about the prayer before the gospel? Oh, I would love for you. I would love for you to. (laughs) (laughs) I really like these prayers. I don't have too much um, amazing to say about them, but I actually really liked being, I have actually really liked being able to pray them in English with our family when we're doing our home dry mass prayers because yeah they're just so cool they reference the prophet isaiah's vision where he has the burning coal touched to his lips which is just such a cool scriptural moment yes let me read the prayer cleanse my heart and my lips O almighty god who didst cleanse the lips of the prophet isaiah with a burning coal and vouchsafe through thy gracious mercy so to purify me that I may worthily proclaim thy holy gospel through Christ our Lord. Amen. And then it continues, Be pleased, O Lord, to give thy blessing. The Lord be in my heart and on my lips, that I may worthily and in a becoming manner announce his holy gospel. So very cool. Some part of this, or all of it, maybe is retained in the Novus Ordo too, the priest prays before going to read the gospel. I don't have it in front of me, though. I'll find out. One sec. Have we mentioned the movement of the of the book as well? The lectionary? Other than what we said in our mystical right. missile okay. episode? Yeah. We haven't yep. mentioned it this episode yet, I don't think. Okay. I'm going to read. Yeah. This part. Um, just, just before you do, so in the quote-unquote, liturgy of the word prior to the proclamation of the gospel, the deacon comes and asks uh, your blessing, Father, and the priest says, may the Lord be in your heart and on your lips that you may 
proclaim his gospel worthily and well in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, it says, if, however, a deacon is not present, the priest bowing before the altar says quietly, cleanse my heart and my lips, almighty God, that I may worthily proclaim your holy gospel. So it's kind of there, but it's Where's not. Isaiah? Yeah. There's no reference there to him. Ooh. I love that part. Mm. It makes me grumpy every time I find out about something like that being cut out. <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say, Brooke? I wanted to share this little excerpt that I shared with you guys earlier. Uh, this is again coming from This is the Mass. This is just a great book, by the way. It is lovely. Quote, now the book is brought to its privileged place to the left corner of the altar on the side as if it were that altar's heart, where from the words of Christ himself are to be resound, are to resound. Meanwhile, the priest who is about to speak in Christ's name prepares himself for that awesome task by begging that God will purify his lips, as once did he those of Isaiah when an angel touched the great prophet's mouth with a burning coal, end quote. Mm-hmm. The imagery of the gospel moving over to the, the heart. It's cool. It's Oof. beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Like yeah. literally like pouring out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were just talking off before we recorded about how there's so many different meanings of that trip, obviously in our episode about the uh, mystical significance of the missile, we talked about how it's going to the North symbolizing the gospel uh, being taken to the Gentiles away from the Jews. And then there's that, but in Mormon, there's even another reason too uh, that the, uh, the journey of the gospel um, from one side of the altar to the other brings to mind Christ being brought back and forth between the iniquitous judges during his passion, being brought before the high priest, Pilate, Herod, Pilate again. Um, yeah, so cool. There's just layers and layers of meaning to this stuff. Um, talking about the what we talked about in the mystical significance of the missile as well. So, again, we're talking about how the lecture or the uh, missile is brought to face liturgical north, and it says here from uh, Dom Garanger that that the priest shall be somewhat turned towards the north. It is the same with the deacon. He stands facing north when he sings the gospel. Because according to the word of the prophet Jeremiah, uh, chapter 14, from the north shall all evil break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. It is for the same mysterious reason that in the baptism of, in the baptism of adults, the catechumen is put so as to face the north when uttering his renunciation of Satan. Formerly in the larger churches, there were erected two ambos or pulpits, one for the epistle and the other for the gospel. At present, we do not find these two ambos, except in the two churches at Rome, St. Clement and St. Lawrence outside the walls. 
They were used also in St. Paul's before its restoration. It was at the Ambo that was placed the Paschal candle during the 40 days preceding the Feast of the Ascension. By the way, the day that we're recording this, or day that we are airing this, is Wednesday of Rogation Day. So that's the eve of the Ascension. So, yeah, just saying. Awesome. Yeah, hope you're enjoying your Rogation Days. Yeah. Any other further thoughts, guys? I did find in Mormon his uh, explanation of why North is the Gentiles. Um, And he just says that um, we're talking Northern Hemisphere here, obviously. But he says the South with its uh, more abundant vegetation is kind of represented um, paradise and then the frozen and the frozen wastes of the north as representing evil and hell essentially and that's why they became symbols of Jerusalem and um, well the Jews and the Gentiles the promised land and lands of the gentiles mm-hmm. so yes. basically the mason dixon line for our american <laughs> listeners i also wanted to add like before um before the priest reads the gospel we do the we trace the sign of the cross on our foreheads and on our lips and on our heart mm-hmm. and we do this to have the intellect to know the truth um, over our lips to confess it. And then uh, over our heart for heartfelt attachment and love to love it. And yeah. Um, yeah. Receive it in our arms. Mm-hmm. I did learn that as a kid, you know, we do the Gloria TV Domine in Novus Ordo land as well. Yeah. Just in English. <laughs> I do remember my dad teaching me what this meant in the in basically those exact same terms as mm-hmm. a little kid. It's one of the first things we've got heavy to learn too. Yeah. So okay, just a random, random tangential question. Okay. So maybe this is my, this is me and my sheltered, very Caucasian experience, but like uh-oh. I see a lot in in other places where um, there's more of like Hispanic representation or uh, yeah other cultures where they will do that action, but like when they go into Eucharistic adoration, for example, they'll kneel down and they'll do it on themselves and then they'll cross themselves. I just find it interesting. Like I f- like. I, I kind of want to ask those people, like, why do you do that? Are you are you asking, are you praying that prayer that the word of God, the logos, be in your mind and in your on your lips and in your heart, like at that same time, or is it just a cultural thing that you you attach it to your sign of the cross? Like for me, like I've always done the sign of the cross and then followed it with like. I make a cross with my fingers and I kiss it. 
Um, but I learned that from a net missionary back when I was like 12. So, <laughs> well, sometimes you'll see like people cross themselves like three times too, right? Yeah. But that's more Eastern, right? Is it not? I've seen it. I can't remember if I've seen it only at Eastern, right? Or I've seen it at Nova Sartell as well. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I just find it interesting. If you're if you're someone who does that, would you let me know? Just because it's, I find it very interesting. Like, is that just a cultural thing, or, yeah? I could see it developing as just a pious mm-hmm. tradition of people relating to that good sentiment of keeping God on the mind, heart, and lips. Right. Mm-hmm. Good thing to be praying for. Right. Well, my friends, is this the end for season two no. for liturgical breakdown? Yes. <laughs> but we're going to come back to it, right? Yeah. Yeah, we are. <laughs> I kind of feel like uh, it. this series has become kind of like Sufjan Stevens when he said that he would do an album for every state. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, like by the end there's gonna be like twenty-five parts to this liturgical breakdown. Yeah. And if we don't finish it, some other podcaster is gonna just farm it out to <laughs> like fifty other podcasts yeah. and get it done. Exactly. Just exactly. to embarrass us. <laughs> but there's no way we could have crammed every single thing that we've learned about the parts of the mass in, you know, even five episodes. No. Yeah. That's the thing. It's a learning process for us too. We're going through these books and learning about the liturgy and we're not sitting down like professors to teach you about the liturgy. We're also learning along with you. Mm -hmm. Maybe everyone who's listening already knows all these things and we're just learning by ourselves. Mm. And they're just like, good students, you've done well. As a wise man once said, I'm not a smart man, but I know what the liturgy looks like. And he put the Latin mass explained down on the table and the lectionary. <laughs> Who said that? I, I did. <laughs> Brooke identifies as a wise man. Don't, don't ask. Don't you dare say otherwise, you bigot. <laughs> Uh, awesome. Okay. Well, yeah, let's, uh, let's bring this liturgical breakdown, uh, to, uh, I don't know. Let's bring it in for a landing for a pause. Yeah. We're going to, we're not like a homily. We're going to take the maniple off now. And, uh, Oh, this is really appropriate actually. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The rest of the podcasts are just a sermon until we start liturgical breakdown. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, yeah, in the, in the early fall, we'll, uh, we'll return with liturgical breakdown and we'll get into the credo, which will be great. All right, guys. Well, let's, uh, let's bring this down. So thank you to everyone for listening to our final liturgical breakdown of season two. Uh, We're really glad that you have chosen to go on this journey with us. 
Thanks, everyone. It's been great. We love you. If you've not yet... You can't hear it, but Brooke is smiling at you. They can hear it. If you've not yet, we would love for you to subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to great podcasts. If you like social media, as we do very much, as we discussed at the beginning of this episode, we'd love for you to give us a follow, especially if you want to see my big burly beard get destroyed. Um, so give us a give us a follow. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Theology the Buddy. If you wish to email us, we'd love to hear from you. You can hit us up at theologyofthebuddy at gmail.com. All of our past episodes and show notes are all at theologyofthebuddy.com. And again, a huge shout out to our secret sponsor for uh, providing us with that domain. You are wonderful. Next week, I'm going solo and I am talking about devotion to God the Father. Uh, was a request. That makes sense. For the sir, the sermon, you're uh, just going in solo. We're the servers. We're just going to go sit down and uh, <laughs> it's all you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense, right? It makes liturgical sense. Um, so, yeah. So, please, I'd love for you to tune in and check it out. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different, but uh, yeah, it was uh, a request that we see- received a while back and uh, I think it's time. So uh, make sure you're subscribed so you'll know when it comes out. All of our episodes are released every Wednesday. And so until then, stay stay tratty. tratty.